representatives of the and campaign justin gibney and chris butler they wrote a book called compassion and conviction the book basically helps christians navigate the political sphere and uh, and help it helps us to better reckon with how we should be doing politics uh in our context and so we recommend everybody uh, the link to the book will be in the show notes to come and to check that book out and listen to the interview these guys have tremendous wisdom and insight to give as we as we steward um our uh calling to love our neighbor and how that plays itself out politically Yes, and uh, along with the fact that they have written a book, as Brian mentioned, they're also part of this organization called Ant Campaign, which has chapters in most major cities now and is really just a, a broad coalition of folks who want to faithfully engage in politics at both the local level and beyond and so if you'd like to get involved with the and campaign we know that a lot of city image listeners are based in new york city and so we'll put a link up for the new york city chapter and if you uh subscribe to updates from the chapter if you like the facebook page you'll get updates about monthly events and so forth they've been doing some really good things and it's, it's crazy times brian Bro, people are yes, people are losing it out here, man. They are absolutely losing it, and and in many ways, with good reason. It's crazy times. It's hard, bro. It's difficult for, for us to navigate, and so much of what we are dealing with has political. And I kind of expressed it so. in the episode myself. It's just for me, politics is a it's a hopeless place for me right now. It's a very frustrating place for me. It's thorns in the midst of the garden. But I appreciate, as you'll hear in the interview, Justin calling us to not shy away from the messiness that's politics but mm-hmm. to engage because it is a part of our calling as we love our neighbor we are in a system that one of the best ways we can love our neighbor is to seek uh political advocacy on behalf of the least of these on behalf of those who need it so it is something that we have to engage but it is messy it's complicated and i'm still thinking through a lot of things but I think this episode at least sets us in the right direction and the book will help to help us understand how we should be navigating these issues. So we are going to live in the tension and we are going to be having a discussion about faith and politics. Just to give you guys a background on Justin Gibney and Chris Butler. Justin is a co-founder of the Ann Campaign and he's an attorney and a political strategist in Atlanta. He's a seasoned political vet. And, and then we got Chris Butler, and he is an organizer, a pastor in Chicago. He's a senior leader of the Chicago Embassy Church Network. 
And he's done a lot of stuff with educational reform, with criminal justice reform, with building peacemaking networks and and really just working in Chicago to better the community through political engagement. And so they got a lot of clout and they're about to drop some knowledge on us. So yeah, we're excited for y'all to hear this, this episode. Yes, sir. All right. So stay tuned. You're now listening to the City Image Podcast. What is up, family? It's Brian, the Theological Giant. I just want to thank all of you for listening to the City Image Podcast. Your continued support gives us the ability to produce faith-based content that is relevant to the urban context. If you haven't already, subscribe to City Image so that you won't miss any of our episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast on every major platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast helps us grow our audience. Also, if you've been blessed by our work, please consider sharing our content with friends and on social media. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The City Image and make sure to like the City Image Facebook page as well. Lastly, feel free to email any feedback, thoughts, and comments on any of our episodes at cityimagepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back. We are with Justin Gibney and Chris Butler from the And Campaign. Their book, Compassion and Conviction, is out now. And we need help, guys. We need help. We need y'all to save us. This is a crazy political moment. And so we are looking for wisdom. We are looking for insight. And so we thank you guys for, for joining us on City Image. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Uh, we can't save you, but we can point you to the one who can. <laughs> yes, 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 that's right. I think there's a lot of different angles that people will be listening to this interview. There's a lot of people that I think are very disheartened by the church's engagement in politics and really want the church to stay out of politics. And there's probably a lot of people that feel like Politics is like first and foremost in, in like their Christian identity. And so can you guys give us some insight? Why should Christians engage in the political arena and why should they equip themselves to deal with civic issues? Yeah, I'll start off. I, I would say, number one, number one, the gospel has uh, political implications, right? We know that as Christians, the main thing we should be doing is proclaiming the gospel. But we also know that the second half of the great commandment, which is to love our neighbors like ourselves. And because politics touches every aspect of society, whether we like it or not, one robust way to love our neighbors is through social action, is to make sure that they're taken care of and they're not mistreated. And so I usually say that our, our main purpose in politics is to promote is to protect human dignity and to promote, promote human flourishing. And I think that's really a matter of loving our neighbors. If we don't use the tools that are in front of us to love our neighbors, I think quite simply, we're just being bad stewards. And so that's, from my point of view, I think that's why we should be involved. Yeah, and I probably would just only add that every American Christian is involved in politics because we have this system of, of essentially self-government. You can't not be involved in politics uh, in the United States a decision to not engage is a political decision because mm. uh, you're yielding that space and that power to somebody else. 
Uh, and so that is in and of itself a political decision. So uh, it should make the question easier for Christians if you look at it that way, because now you're not talking about if you engage in politics, but how. Yeah, so a common thing that you hear in terms of mixing religion and uh, political engagement is that America is a country where we have a value of the separation of church and state. Intermingling church and state religion and politics, these two things, we should compartmentalize, we should separate, we should keep our faith out of it. So what would you say to someone who would say, okay, I get that all Christians are citizens, but we need to compartmentalize and, and, and make sure that we have that proper boundary? Yeah, I would just say, number one, as an attorney, one of the most misunderstood concepts is the separation between church and state. It, it absolutely does not mean that you shouldn't bring your values into a conversation about policy and, and law. The truth of the matter is you can't create a law without somebody's values or, 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 or their beliefs being a part of that conversation. And so for Christians to be faithful, it is impossible to not bring your values or to bring your religion into the conversation. Christianity is not something that just ends when we leave the doors of the church. It is a lifestyle. It's a way of seeing the world. And so whether you're in politics, whether you're in some other space, you're still a Christian. And so, again, it's just not possible to be faithful and to separate what you believe and who you believe in from uh, political decisions. That just can't happen. And so Christians need to be a little more clear about that, while at the same time understanding we live in a society with people who, who have different beliefs, so we can respect other people's beliefs. We're not trying to force them into some kind of theocracy. But when I vote, if I'm not basing it on my beliefs, I'm just basing it on someone else's. In terms of understanding that balance between bringing our value systems, understanding that our, we bring our value systems into the civic sphere, but not being so dominant as a lot of Christians who have entered into politics have been. What would you say is the best way to strike a balance between those two things? How do we responsibly bring our faith into like a pluralistic setting? Yeah, I, I think that our faith is designed for every culture and every place and, and every time of human history. And when we come into the political sphere, one, in politics, I don't necessarily think that is our job to strike a balance so much. The democratic representative form of government really asks people to bring their values and beliefs to the conversation, um, not, not a you know, negotiated against itself, you know, I'm going to compromise my values in this place and that place and come to the conversation with a compromised set of values. I'm going to bring what I believe to the conversation. Now, in, in the Christian faith, you have strong values that both tell us to honor the holiness of God and the righteous uh, rule and thinking of God in how we organize life together. It also tells us to love our neighbors, to, to treat our, our to, to love and to love our enemies. Right. So if, if you even if you decide at some point that some political person is just absolutely your enemy, they're out to get you. The biblical instruction is to love. So if we just bring the, our fullness, our full Christianity to the political sphere, I think we come in a right way. I, I step back from that word balance because I don't think it's our job to, to come with balance. We come with our values. But I do think a holistic Christian ethic will keep our political behaviors where they need to be. 
It's good. It's good. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I just had a question on that because I was watching an interview with John MacArthur, and he was talking about how he was criticizing Joe Biden. And, and one of the things he criticized Joe Biden for was that Joe Biden was planning on hiring Muslims and putting Muslims in his uh, cabinet. And he said that was fundamentally unchristian and that goes against God's value. And so I guess for me, the, the question I'm, I'm getting at is how do we live pluralistically where we understand that we have these beliefs, right? And obviously we think Islam fundamentally goes against Christianity, but clearly living in a pluralistic society where we love our neighbors, we want them to obviously have jobs. So how does John MacArthur, he's a theologian, a thinker involved in politics, how does he not find a way to I, I, I want to use the word balance, but that's probably not the right word to, to bring a Christian of, uh, framework for understanding how to interact with our neighbor without turning it into a theocracy. I don't know if that's yeah. a question, but I think that there was a confusion there with the way he answered that question. Yeah, I think we disagree probably with MacArthur on quite a few things. One of the things that I, I think he's missing is common grace and that Folks who are not Christian still have the ability to do to to pursue good things, to help people, to enjoy life, things of that nature. And so I can work with somebody or hire somebody who's a Muslim because they may be very good at what they do. And we may have disagreements when it comes to spiritual or religious matters, but that doesn't mean that they can't accomplish certain things. And we talk about this in the book, especially when it comes to politics. We can be co-belligerents with others. Uh, you see this in the Bible. You see this throughout history where uh, a lot of Christian abolitionists and cr Christians in the civil rights movement worked with people who weren't Christian. And, and that happens quite a bit. Now, when we do that, I think we do. There needs to be some caution there. And one of the problems that I see today is especially on the kind of so social justice conversation, which we fully support. But a lot of Christians are walking into that conversation and not being fully aware of who they're partnering with and getting drug into some values, some unbiblical values, because they haven't said, yes, I'm going to partner with you, but this is a limited partnership. It doesn't mean that I'm taking on your values. Here's who I am. I understand who you are, and I'm going to come out with the same values when I leave here. But there, are, there is a certain objection, objective that we can reach together. So I'd, I'd like uh, MacArthur to address kind of the common grace there. How do we love our neighbors? How do we include them in conversations that they definitely should be included in uh, and represented in without kind of disregarding them and treat them in that manner. I was having a conversation like this with somebody in the congregation because we have very deeply held beliefs about marriage and uh, family and life and certainly who God is and as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. But my question was, when did the kind of Christian ethic, those of us who are evangelical in the sense that we believe that we should be sharing the gospel of Jesus and, and hoping for the salvation of the souls of people. When did that translate into make sure that people who disagree with Christian social ethics don't have jobs, can't participate in the government, uh, can't get housing? And I, and I asked this question, when is the last time you wept for somebody who was living a homosexual lifestyle? When is the last time you wept for a person who's a Muslim who lives in your community as, as that community is growing, you know, a lot in, in, in the Chicagoland area? Like, 
when did Christians trade weeping for this, this angry mode? I, I think that's where we have to get back to, right? It's not that I want to, that, that I want to punish you. This salvation that we claim, what did Paul say? What do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it, why do we boast, right? Like, this is something that we're hoping for God to do a miracle in the lives of people. And I don't see how we get there by dehumanizing people and, and mistreating them. I, I don't see that in the scripture. And I, I just don't see how we ever arrived at that. Yeah, and then we have to address the fear, right? Like what's motivating you to say, I don't want this Muslim in my administration. I don't want to work with them. Is it fear? Is that really how we're supposed to operate? And I don't see a justification in the gospel for that position. And I agree with you guys 100%. And trying to think through MacArthur's logic, and that can be sometimes difficult, but trying to figure out what he's coming at, do you think he has this belief that if we allow, say, for Muslims or whoever else may have beliefs or a lifestyle that's quote-unquote anti-Christian, if we allow them to flourish in society, is that therefore affirming that lifestyle or affirming their beliefs? Does he believe somehow that we're dropping the ball and communicating to them? Because I think sometimes with like people like John MacArthur, I think that they like to exercise church discipline on everybody, whether they're in the church or not. Like the primary mode of relationship is to cut people off. Like you're out and make sure you know you out. So you know that there's an issue with you that you need to repent and come to Jesus And then there's this sense of, okay, if I somehow allow you to be in my administration or if I promote your flourishing, am I communicating to you that your beliefs or your lifestyle is acceptable? So I don't know if this is what MacArthur believes, but in trying to think through what he could possibly be motivated by, does that make sense? Or are, are Christians at all going to somehow compromise on the gospel if we start radically including people who think and believe differently from us? Yeah, I don't know exactly what he's thinking, so I can't get into his head, but I'll say this. I think it seems to me that he's embracing a false dichotomy, which says that you either are disgusted with someone and, and get them away from you, or you affirm them. Those are the two options. And we see this within secular society, too, when it comes to LGBTQ issues. Either you affirm somebody or you hate them. That's just not a dichotomy that's in the gospel. Jesus reaching out to people who, norm, who, who folks normally wouldn't reach out to, loving them, but also saying, stop sinning, right? Also saying, I love you, but I don't affirm what you're doing. And so in a practical sense, or if we apply it to what the situation that MacArthur was talking about, that means I can hire you, but in other parts of my witness, it's going to be very clear that I disagree with you on some things. That's not so hard to do, but a lot of times we like to buy in these into these very reductionist narratives because it makes it an easier answer for us. It seems like it, it makes us, it's a clearer way to, to talk about something. But I think one of the main reasons that Christians make mistakes, especially when it comes to political issues or hard issues, is avoiding the tension, right? We don't want to step into that tension. We want to avoid the tension and just go to one side or the other instead of living up in the tension of loving somebody but not affirming them. That's attention. And I think the world avoids attention too, but we have to step into it because so much of the Christian life is that kind of tension that we really have to embrace. Yeah. And if, and if we leave, and I don't know, y'all interviewing a pastor on Monday, so I'm, I'm just coming off of Sunday, but I have to say that if we 
bring if, if we don't step into that tension or if we bring unnecessary argument into the tension, then we cloud the gospel. Right. If some if the secular world is going to hate me, let it be because I proclaim Jesus as Christ, which history proves to us is quite enough. Jesus didn't try to push anybody out of their employment or housing or dehumanize anybody in any way. And they still crucified. Right. But if I bring these other issues that are not central to the gospel uh, into the conversation, then I cloud the gospel. And whatever the fear is, I don't care if, if you think you're going to compromise your, uh, you're not being strong enough on the gospel, or as some folks have told me, these folks are going to continue to gain power and eventually Christians are going to be persecuted. We should be trying to save ourselves from persecution. We shouldn't be trying to punish other people for what they believe. We shouldn't be trying to do anything except for bear witness to the name of Christ, come what may. And if we do anything else, we actually cloud the gospel. We raise ourselves up too high in the process of salvation because we don't save anybody. And then we cheapen the power of God in the gospel to save anybody, all by us trying to overdo it. We're supposed to go out. We testify to the name of the Lord. We raise up the standard of the scripture. Uh, we proclaim Christ as King and we love everybody. That's our job. That is what we do. Everybody who gets saved is because God drew them that we should just do our thing, right? We stay on our square. We'll be all right. Your book talks a lot about civility as a value. And I think there's a lot of Christians and a lot of people in general, you know, outside of the church that feel like they're the issues that they care about are so high stakes. I've heard a lot of it said, look, it doesn't matter if you do the calculus and you existentially believe life begins at conception. Like it, it doesn't matter who you put in office. You need to save those unborn lives. And then in, on the other side, it's, there's so many crucial issues that we have to deal with. And so often civility has been used as a way to suppress dissenting and oppress voices and keep people subdued. And so people feel like that's a tertiary issue compared to the high stakes issues of climate change or healthcare or abortion or what have you. So do you feel like in light of what those criticisms might say that civility is still something that we should prioritize as a value as Christians? Absolutely. I mean, your definition of civility matters, right? And so our definition of civility has nothing to do with being passive. It has nothing to do with being quiet. It has nothing to do with respectability. Uh, it's a, just a level of respect for, for the civic process, for your opponents and things of that nature. So I, I would just point out two things. Number one, that the idea that these issues are too serious to be civil. Civility doesn't matter in the easy situations. Anybody can be civil when, the, when it's easy to be civil. That's not why you even would have it as a principle because you don't even need it then. No, that's easy. Yeah. It's made for the tough times. Everything in politics in one way or another can be a life or death situation. There's never been a, a moment when politics weren't serious or everything was just of little consequence. It's always been of high consequence. And civility has always been helpful. The, the second thing that I would say is the alternative to civility is a lot less effective than I think people believe it is. The alternative is, number one, just being disrespectful, going around yelling at people. 
you rarely persuade anyone that way. So it may feel good to you temporarily, like you're fulfilling something in you to feel like you're going hard on somebody. But again, civility uh, isn't weakness. And the alternative, again, is either violence or just a way of going about things that for Christians is not representative of our father. Going insult for insult, all those things doesn't make you more effective. It just carries you away actually from the purpose that you're in, that you're engaging for. Even just as a political tactician, it is not effective. We're having this in, in Chicago right now, and I'm, I'm trying to point people to uh, a false dichotomy on the tactical side. Do we have a peaceful protest or do we have violent protest? And that is a false dichotomy, right? There is a form of protest that is not peaceful. It certainly disrupts things and disturbs peace, but it is also not violent. And you, you can be disruptive and nonviolent. And you want to be that way because if you're not ready to declare and win like a war, then a, a, an uncivil, violent form of protest is just not going to help you win. So if the goal is to win, disability is a key component in, in how you actually win on, on your issue. And I would add to that, uh, it surprises me some of the people I see talking about not being civil. Because what we, one thing we have to realize is that civility is what allows the small guy to even have a voice. Civility is a, what allows a woman to speak in situations where she might not be allowed to speak. So if you don't have civility, then you have a might is right that excludes a number of voices that need to be heard. And so when I see people say that who probably wouldn't be in the position to speak without civility, it's interesting to hear that. And, and it just tells me they may not understand all that concept affords, that principle affords. Uh, and so those are important. Those kind of things are important to think about as well. Chris, you brought up protesting and demonstrating. And I, I'm glad you did, because I, I know for, for a lot of Christians, they think that their only political decision is what happens in November when they vote. And that's the only way to civically engage. That's like where your identity <laughs> rises and falls as a political agent. And we know that's not true. We know that there's a lot of different ways that, that Christians throughout history have politically, uh, have made political impact. And for those listening, how can we engage in politics beyond voting? And when it comes to engaging beyond voting, how do we orient our lives with so much going on in our lives in a way where we can make an impact? Now, so as a, an organizer... I've been in, involved in organizing virtually all of my life. Uh, I'm always trying to remind Christians that voting, I, and I think voting is absolutely important. I think we should vote. But voting is actually going to be one of the least Christian things that you can do in politics. And, and what I mean by that is what you alluded to earlier. There is no Christian vote on the ballot in 2020. There is a faithful way to vote Republican. There is a faithful way to vote Democratic. But it's very hard to say that by voting for Republicans or Democrats, that I did something that is uniquely Christian. After Election Day, the work of holding folks accountable is very values-driven, right? We can uh, ask people to do things, demand that people do things that are 100% driven by our values. And, and, and it's very important that we figure those types of things out. And because of the second part of what you said, because life is complicated, it's complex, it's busy, I 
really am, am on this, this thing of reminding people of the tremendous value of, I guess what you would call mediating institutions, churches, civic organizations. They exist. They, some need to be reformed and re-energized. New ones need to come to existence. But we come together to form institutions where we can do things together that we can't do alone. Is everybody going to become the president of the local NAACP? And I'm just using that as a, an example organization. No. But a lot more people then can become president can donate to it, can show up to a monthly meeting, can contribute to what the organization is thinking about prioritizing. And, and whatever your level of life is going to allow. I used to be involved in a lot more civic activity. Now I have four children under the age of nine, and I do a lot less than I used to. But wh- whatever your level of engagement can be, do all that you can as well as you can as much as you can, but it's going to be more impactful if we do it through institutions. Yeah. I just love Chris, what you said that you opened up political activity past voting, which is good. And and on this voting issue, I think one of the things that I've struggled with, and I could probably speak for a few voices out there is that I, I, I struggle, especially when it comes to the general election between Republican and Democrat, because I, I find that both parties have deeply troubling things that are a part of their platform, or at least a part of the culture, that literally render me unable to support both parties. And I don't know if my thinking is correct in this, but I, I, I see vote, I see not voting as an option. Now, there are people who've criticized me for this, and maybe you guys will as well, but as trying to think through this, like if, what I've seen happen is if you're a Democrat, you tend to lessen the moral problems on your own platform. And I've heard people weasel their way through why, for instance, abortion isn't that big of a moral issue or whatever. And then they, they justify why they can vote Democrat. Or if you're on the Republican side, I've seen people dismiss the promotion of white supremacy or whatever might be culturally problematic in, in their political space in order to justify voting for their political party. And for me, I can't do that. I cannot somehow justify or or minimize the moral issues on both platforms. And I actually think voting third party, it kind of is a waste of time. Or, Or it just, it's not really an effective way of voting. So I wrestle with that um, heavily and in, in past elections have just opted not to vote. How would you respond to somebody who's, who's in my position? What would you tell someone like me trying to navigate the general election? Yeah, I think there are cases where not voting can be strategic, but I think it's a tactic and in and of itself, it's not a clear strategy. All right. That, that's one tactic, uh, part of a bigger strategy that you might ha- have. But if that's your whole strategy, I think that there is a problem there. But one thing I would tell you is not to put too much into which party you vote for. I don't think that means that you're justifying everything that they do, that you are agreeing and co-signing every single policy that they're promoting. I, I don't think that's what that means. I, I think I would say, and probably Chris would repeat too, regardless of what party you vote for, it's not part of your identity. And so if the party is a tool, then I use it as a tool and I vote on the the best, I vote the best way that I can on that particular election, which is not going to be perfect either way that it goes. But to go back to what Chris was saying earlier, 
this is just one part of the process, right? There's a lot of the process that comes before voting. And then after voting, just because I vote for somebody doesn't mean that I'm just going to defend everything that they do once they get in office or even defend that party. Really, what we've been telling people is that once you vote for somebody, if they win, then you're even more responsible to hold them accountable for the things that you disagree with beforehand. So whoever I vote for in November, before I vote for them, I'm going to be pointing out what they're doing wrong. And after I vote for them, I'm going to be pointing out what they're doing wrong and need to improve because my vote is not giving them a mandate just to do whatever they want to do. I'm not going to leave them to their own devices. I'm voting for you, but you're going to know the limits of why I voted for you too. And I'm going to be vocal about that. And it's another reason why it's best to do that through institutions and with larger groups deciding, okay, this is how we're going to go about this, but we're going to make sure that they know what we're not, what we're not agreeing to. Yeah. And I would just say strategically, when you think about that engagement beyond the election, I'm a strong advocate of, of, of voting and participating in electoral politics because it gives you, uh, just from a strategic standpoint, the ability to participate beyond the election, right? You, if as a political party or a, an elected official, I'm always looking at the math. And so if you don't participate in elections, I already won without you, then I've got a lot less of a reason to listen to you and, and what you think about how I'm running government once I'm in office. I believe in, in strong coalitions, especially in, in local politics, strong coalitions to come together because a lot of times those coalitions can have great impact because elected officials actually understand that they are not going to win the next election without you. And so they need uh, that support. So that's what we should be trying to create in elections, not this kind of identity vote, but it's part, like Justin said, of a larger strategy to, to go forward. So I, I would say that voting or not voting, as Justin said, is just a tactic. And it, it, all of it needs to be attached to a much larger strategy. That's interesting, Justin. I appreciate you saying what you said there because I've never seen that, to be honest with you. I've not seen people in a party be critical about their particular candidate before or after. And part of the reason is because you're trying to get that guy elected. So having a whole bunch of voices that are critical or even, I just, I see so much tribalism in politics that no one's really trying to hold their side accountable. You're just trying to get your side to win. And so it's just a strange concept. And it, I'm almost thinking, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm, when it comes to political participation, like, I've, I, I struggle with hopelessness when it comes to it. And, like, it all, what you're suggesting almost sounds like a utopia. Like, oh, we're going to be so, like, level-headed about our candidates and we're going to, like, equally weigh what they're doing. It, it just seems that people just devolve into, hey, this is my guy. He's going to go to war for me on whatever I need to get done. And I'm just going to minimize whatever his issues are. But I, I, I appreciate the perspective. And I hope this thinking begins to take hold. That yeah, so let me be clear. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying what everybody else is going to do. I'm saying yeah. what you can do. We're talking yeah. about your vote. And so what I'm telling you, I'm not saying everybody's going to be level-headed and not try to. I, I can almost guarantee you most people aren't. Right. So yeah. that's not my yeah. argument. But you can. 
And you can feel better about your vote by saying, you know what, I am going to be vocal about some of these other issues. Uh, I am going to make sure that people that people know what I believe outside of who this candidate is, because this candidate is not me. And I think one of the things that people do and the reason that they just support whatever comes after their vote is because now they feel that I voted for this person. Uh, He's this person's part of my identity in some way, or at least this party is. And now I have to justify myself. So if I admit mm. that person has done something wrong, if I admit his that's policies good. are bad, that means that's I was good. wrong. And that's not how we should look at it. But again, I wish I could say that most people were going to do that. I'm talking about what you can do and hopefully what me, Chris, and others will try to do after this vote. That's good, man. I, I do think that's what the end campaign uh, is about, is really emerging as one of those mediating institutions where a lot of folks who hope for this can come together because it, it has happened. It used to happen a lot more often. When Fannie Lou Hamer went to challenge the Democrats, she didn't challenge them with saying, I'm not going to be a Democrat or, and she, but she didn't cower in Mississippi because she was a Democrat and she had to, you know, fall in line with the party. She went to the party and challenged them as a Democrat challenging what they were doing and, and not threatening to leave the party. She actually said to the party, you won't be able to do anything for poor people if you don't get this right. So it, it has happened. It needs to happen again in order really to rescue our politics because it's not just Christians. Or I'm, saying this to, I'm saying this to social justice people in Illinois right now. You want criminal justice reform. In the last election, we gave the entire government, both houses of our legislature and the governorship, every statewide office, we gave the entire government to the party that said they were going to deliver it. They delivered abortion expansion. They delivered commercialization of marijuana. Uh, they delivered a, a lot of things. They never delivered on education funding. They did not deliver on police reform. Now we have coronavirus, and it's unclear. It, it probably will be the next election, and they'll be back in our churches uh, and in our organizations asking for our votes again before they ever get to education or police reform, any of those types of things. So a a lot of different people need to do this in our politics, but the church, I believe, can can break that. Because what you described is exactly what's happened in our politics. It always devolves into this party as identity, uh, culture war fight, and it doesn't need to. And if we keep letting it happen, I don't know uh, if we can keep perpetuating the system of government this way. So we need it to happen to save this system of government. I believe that the church can lead. I think every kind of issue group needs this, but the church can lead. And we have the Holy Spirit working with us who can break that hopelessness for us in our hearts, break that hopelessness and give us the courage to stand in our institution that we call the church and perhaps lead to a much better uh, climate in politics overall. And so that's what I'm hopeful for. And I think that's what the AND campaign stands for at this moment in our kind of political history. Hmm. One theme that I've seen AND campaign talk a lot about is the idea of being politically homeless. And one thing I really respect about the way that you guys talk about the issues is that you guys are so immersed in politics and in civic engagement but you're able to speak with it with somewhat of a distance from being caught up in these wholesale political agendas. And, and you're able to have an imagination beyond the options that you're provided that's animated by your faith. In terms of that idea of being politically homeless, can you maybe leave us off with what the AND campaign means by that 
and how we can operate as people that are politically homeless but still engage deeply in political work. Yeah, I think what we're saying is you shouldn't feel comfortable in either party. So some Christians are like, man, I don't, they feel bad about not feeling comfortable in any party. We're saying, no, that's good. The problem would be if you felt comfortable in either party, because that would mean that either you're indoctrinated or, or you've accepted some things that are really unacceptable from a biblical point of view. And so Christians should feel that. But we also want to say to them, that doesn't mean you don't engage, right? You don't run away from that feeling. Again, it's that tension, right? Politics isn't the way I want it to be. Do I run away or do I you know, engage it? Uh, we're saying engage it. Don't follow behind the spirit of the day, but you can engage it because it still gives you an opportunity uh, to help others, again, to defend human dignity and those things. So that's really where we're coming from, that be in your party, but have a separation to where that the party's not part of your identity and there is a discomfort with some of the things they do and be vocal about those things. I'm very grateful for the end campaign um, because I, I do think that political parties uh, are a, a terrible place to find a political home. What I appreciate about the AM campaign, and it's just what the mediated institutions do for us, is that it, it gives you a political home, an organization that's devoted to thinking about politics, policy, civic engagement, but devoted to doing it from a Christian perspective. And and then you can leave the AM campaign and, 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 and go participate in your party, the major parties, the third party, no party, um, whatever else you're doing in civics and politics, I, I think the end campaign becomes a place where you can really find fellowship and, and actual civic connection, the Peace and Justice Initiative and, and, and different things. As you find a, a place to associate civically and politically that is driven, we pray, by the gospel and by a, a Christian ethic. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. The book is called Compassion and Conviction. You can find it anywhere you could purchase books. It's such an appropriate and important book for this season. And so we really encourage everybody to go out and check it out. Justin, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on City thank Image. You. Thank you all for having, having us. Thank you. I'll take care. City Image.